Between the years of 1968 and 1985, the Italian city of Florence was ravaged by an unidentified serial killer that would come to be known as the Monster of Florence. Hidden by a veil of shadowy anonymity, the monster, also sometimes called the Surgeon of Death, brutally murdered 16 people over a 17-year span. The killer, or killers as some believe, had a strict modus operandi. His victims were always couples, alone in their cars on dark, deserted lovers' lanes. The monster would lay in wait until his victims began getting intimate, after which he would come out of the dark and ambush the man and woman. He would then pull out his Beretta 22 caliber pistol loaded with Winchester Series H bullets and shoot the couple to death. After his victims had died, he would finish his brutal crime with what would become to be known as the monster's calling card, the post-mortem mutilation of the female victim's body. The monster Florence terrorized the Florentine suburbs for over a decade, and while many men have been suspected and even imprisoned for the crimes, the true identity of the monster has never been known. In this episode, we'll take a deep dive into the crimes, the ammo, and the suspects. So buckle up your seatbelts, everybody, because this one is going to be a wild ride, and you're never going to believe that this shit really happened. everyone and welcome to this shit really happened the true crime podcast where we deep dive into the most disturbing depraved and downright gruesome crimes that humans have ever committed my name is M, and i'm your host the idea to start this podcast came for me while i was doing what i usually do and that is scrolling for hours through tiktok i came across a video where somebody was discussing the horror movie iceberg which i think was a post back on reddit maybe I don't know, 2019 or 2020, the year honestly really doesn't matter that much. But it was a post that was basically, we all know how it goes. Like the tip of the iceberg is, you know, only a small percentage of what you see. And as you go further down into the water, things get deeper, things get a little darker. So what this post was about this horror movie iceberg was at like the tip of the iceberg that was all the mainstream horror movies that people all really know of, like, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, you know, things that are a little gory, a little scary, but, you know, most people have either seen the movies or at least heard of them. And those are the things that are on the top tier of the iceberg. But then there's like, six or seven more tiers as you go down this horror movie iceberg. And as you slowly go down, the films get darker, more depraved. Um, And by the time you're at the bottom of the iceberg and like tier eight or nine, whatever it is, these films are basically like torture porn, snuff films made by Hollywood just for shits and giggles with really horrible depraved torture sequences and it's all just really horrible and terrible um for reference if you've ever heard of the movie a siberian film that movie i believe is on like tier five of this iceberg and i think there's like eight or nine tiers like i said so that kind of gives you an idea of how bad things get as you get further down into this quote-unquote iceberg Um, so being the morbidly curious person that I am, I was Googling all of these different films that were on these bottom tiers of this iceberg. Um, 
And then I actually stumbled across a similar post meme, question mark. I don't really know if you would consider this a meme, but it was a Reddit post um, with a serial killer iceberg. And I was looking at this, this post of this iceberg and it was the same thing. It was like the top tier was like those really, I don't want to say mainstream, but like more well-known cases were at the top tier, you know, like Ted Bundy was up there Ed Kemper Ed Gein. And as you got further down into the iceberg, you got more lesser known cases. And as I was looking up these lesser known cases and reading about exactly what they were and what had happened in them, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, how have I never heard of these cases before? And I am somebody who spends a lot of her like waking moments listening to true crime podcasts or watching like true crime videos on YouTube. You know, I'm like an active follower on like Bailey Sarian's page and Eleanor Neal's page watching their videos. So I've got a pretty deep mental repertoire of true crime cases. And a lot of these cases on like the bottom couple tiers of this iceberg, I'm like, how have I never heard of these before? And so I started looking into them. I started researching them a little more and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I need, I need to like tell somebody about these. These are crazy. I can't believe that more people don't know about these cases. These are absolutely insane. So, you know, I didn't want to force my friends around me all the time to suffer with me telling them about these horrible cases that I'd read about because, you know, they can only take so much of that. Not everybody is the kind of person who can, you know, stomach just hours upon hours of being told about horrible gruesome crimes that have happened to people. Um, So I thought to myself, I'm like, why not start a podcast? Why not sit alone in my room and talk about these cases? And so anybody who would like to hear about them can listen to this podcast and they can know about this story and I can get the need to tell everybody about it out of my system. So that's what I decided to do. Um, It did take me a little while to decide what case I wanted to cover for the premiere episode of this. And the Monster of Florence case really stuck out to me, not only for the sheer brutality of the crimes, but for the fact that, for the most part, this case actually remains completely unsolved. Um, As I mentioned in the intro, there have been multiple people suspected of or arrested for the crimes, but not a single one of them was actually, spoiler alert, fully proven to actually be like the Monster of Florence. Um, I'll dive into the suspects and the evidence working for or against them a little more later on, But I do want to go ahead and get into the crimes because I know that's what most of you listening are here for. So let's just get right into it. The monster's killing spree began back on August 21st, 1968 on a balmy summer night in Signa, a small town on the outskirts of Florence. Um, Barbara Locci, age 31, and her lover Antonio Lobianco, age 29, were getting cozied up in the front seat of a car parked in a secluded woodsy area in Signa. Lochi's six-year-old son, Natalino, was asleep in the backseat. Both Lochi and Lobianco were happy to have found a nice secluded area for them to get some loving on, seeing as they were married at the time, just to other people. It would later be reported by Lochi's son, Natalino, that he was woken up from his slumber by the sound of gunshots. Natalino would also report that he was picked up from the car by an unidentified man, who then put the boy over his shoulder, sang him a song to keep him calm, and carried him to a random stranger's home where he just left him there, completely unharmed. Unfortunately, Lochi and Lobianco had not been so lucky. Both had been shot and killed with what would become to be known as the monster signature weapon. This was a Beretta 22 caliber pistol loaded with Winchester Series H bullets. 
The gun, however, after the crime would not actually be found. At the time of the murder, or sorry, at the time, the murder of Lochi and Lobianco was considered by Florentine authorities to be an open and shut case. They did have a clear suspect from the jump, and this was Barbara Lochi's jilted husband, Stefano Mele. The police also suspected a few of Lochi's other lovers, three Sardinian brothers by the names of Giovanni, Salvatore, and Francesco Vinci. Ultimately, however, it would be Stefano Mele that was convicted of the crime. The evidence against Mele seemed to be watertight. Police had performed a paraffin glove test on Mele in the days following Lochi and Lobianco's murders that actually showed he had recently fired a gun, and Mele did actually confess to committing the murders later on in his interrogation. He would later recant this confession and then accuse the Vinci brothers of also being involved, but in the end, he would finally admit to having committed the murders alone. Mele was ultimately convicted of the crime and sentenced to 14 years in prison. He was given a lighter sentence as he was said to suffer from, quote, infirmity of the mind and was deemed both, quote, mentally and intellectually dysfunctional. For Florentine police, the monster or the monsters, the murders of Loci and Lobianco were an open and shut case. They had their guy behind bars. They had no reason to suspect that anyone else but Melly had been responsible for the crime until we fast forward six years and another murder would occur, shockingly similar to the murders of Lochi and Lobianco. The date is Saturday, September 14th, 1974. A young couple, Stefania Patini, age 18, and Pascal Jantocor, age 19, had parked their car in the secluded countryside of Borgo San Lorenzo, a town in the Mugello area just outside of Florence. The couple were regulars to the spot, having gone there to spend some private time alone together for over a year prior to the night of their murders. Their bodies would be discovered the next morning. Pascal Jantocor was found shot to death inside the car, leaning against the car door. Stefania Patini's body was found naked, lying in the grass beside the car. While Jantocor's body had fallen in a way that it could have been mistaken that he was simply asleep, Patini's body was a completely different case. The only similarity between the bodies of Jantocor and Patini was that both of them had been fatally shot. Patini had then been dragged from the car, where the killer stripped her lifeless body naked, stabbed her over 90 times, and then proceeded to violate her with an olive tree branch. The police had initially suspected that the murders of Jean-Tocor and Patini had been a robbery gone wrong, but threw away that theory when it was discovered that nothing from the car had actually been stolen. Jean-Tocor's wallet was still in the glove compartment, and Patini's purse was found in the woods nearby her body, with her wallet and its other contents still inside. The only thing that the killer seemed to have taken were a few pieces of simple jewelry that Patini usually wore. The murders of Jean Tocor and Patini would remain unsolved, and Florence would write the brutal crime off as a one-time event, an inexplicable murder that was unlikely to be repeated. Unfortunately, though, for the people of Florence, was that the murders of Jean Tocor and Patini were only the beginning of a string of double homicides committed by the serial killer that would come to be known as the Monster Florence. Let's fast forward again another seven years to the night of Saturday, June 6, 1981. Carmelo Danuccio, age 21, and Giovanni Foggi, age 30, were parked on a dirt road right outside of Florence in the area of Scandici, a short distance away from a popular nightclub called the Anastasia Club. Similarly to Jantelcore and Patini, Danuccio and Foggi were in the habit of coming to this secluded spot to spend private time alone together. Also, like Jantelcore and Patini, the bodies of Danuccio and Foggi would be discovered the next morning. The state that Danuccio and Foggi's bodies were discovered in was shockingly similar to the crime that had occurred six years earlier. 
Bogie was found fatally shot inside the car, left in the driver's seat half-clothed. Denuccio's body was found outside the vehicle, also fatally shot. Denuccio's body, however, was found with a disturbing mutilation that had not been present on Barbalocci or Stefania Patini. Her jeans had been pulled down and her pubic area had been entirely cut away and removed. It seemed that the killer, sick bastard that he was, had taken it with him as a trophy. Similarly as well with the murders of Jean-Tacor and Patini, Foggy's wallet was left untouched and the content of Denuccio's purse had been scattered around the car near her body. A ballistics check would later also prove that Denuccio and Foggy had been shot by a Beretta 22 caliber rifle loaded with Winchester Series H bullets. Due to the multiple similarities, the murders of Jean-Tacor and Patini and Denuccio and Foggy were almost immediately connected. The Florentine authorities also had to face another horrifying fact. They were no longer dealing with a one-off crime like they thought they had been when they first discovered Jean Tocor and Patini. They now had to reconcile the fact that they had a serial killer on their hands. It was the murder of Denuccio and Foggy that gave police their first line of investigation into the crimes. The areas that these victims were known to frequent were also frequented by peeping toms. Since Florence was surrounded by hills, woods, and countryside, just driving 15 minutes out of the city would take you to a deserted field or woods where you could be completely alone, surrounded by nothing but nature. It was also common for Italians to live at home with their parents until they got married, so couples oftentimes found it difficult to procure alone time together, hence the popularity of couples driving out to deserted areas and parking their cars there to spend some alone time together. It was also quite common for peeping toms to stake out these areas, seeking their thrills by creeping on the young couples while they got frisky in their cars. One of these peeping toms would become the first man suspected of being the monster Florence, and that man's name was Enzo Spalletti. Spalletti was a husband and father who also just happened to have a bad habit of getting his willies on by creeping on couples having sex in their car. And he was taken into custody when it was reported to police that he had been talking about having seen two dead people in the woods. Spalletti's vehicle was also spotted near the area where Denuccio and Foggy had been murdered. The police arrested Spalletti after he refused to tell them more about what he had seen on the night of Denuccio and Foggy's murders, and they held him in custody for further questioning. Four months later, on the night of Thursday, October 22, 1981, the monster of Florence would strike again. The victims this time were Susanna Camby, age 24, and Stefano Baldi, age 26. Like the victims before them, Camby and Baldi had been parked in their car on a deserted country road in Calenzano, a rural area just outside of Florence. They, however, were not regulars to this particular isolated spot. It is actually believed that the couple had just stopped there on a whim and a sudden desire for intimacy. Again, the bodies of Camby and Baldi would be found the next morning. This time, however, Baldi's body was found outside the car, and Baldi was wearing only a shirt and underwear. Camby's body had been carried to a spot nearby the car, where the monster had then mutilated her genitals, same as he had done to Carmela Denuccio. The contents of Camby's purse had been emptied out and scattered around the car, but the purse was not taken, nor was any money or object seemingly stolen from either of the victims. Though the similarities of Camby and Baldi's murders to those of the monster's victims in 1974 and June of 1981, there were a few stark differences that stood out to police. The first was that Camby and Baldi had been murdered on a Thursday night, when the prior murders had taken place on Saturdays. The other crimes had also been committed during the summertime, but Camby and Baldi were murdered in autumn. It is believed by some that the monster strayed from his preferred day and season because the police still had Enzo Spalletti in custody when this murder occurred, 
and the monster wanted to send police a clear message that they had the wrong guy. Although police had feared that the monster had struck that autumn as a way to stick it to the Florentine authorities, the scene of Camby and Baldi's murder had given them something that was few and far between when it came to the monster's crimes. A clue. Specifically, a shoe print, size 44, found in the mud near Camby and Baldi's car. While this shoe print was actually impossible to attribute with total certainty to the monster, police at least were certain that it must have belonged to him, and it confirmed that the man they were looking for was likely tall and robust, based on the size of the shoe and the indentation into the mud where the shoe print was found. After the murders of Camby and Baldi, Enzo Spalletti was released from police custody. At this point for police, it felt like they were chasing a ghost. Four brutal murders had occurred, and the police were no closer to discovering the identity of the monster than they were when the first bodies were found. However, bloodlust would soon inspire the monster to strike again, and this crime would mark a turning point in the case's investigation. On the night of Saturday, June 19, 1982, Antonella Migliorini, age 19, and Paolo Maynardi, age 22, were parked in their car on Chill Street near some bushes in Bacciano, just to the south of Florence. Their parking spot was plainly visible from the street, and they had chosen to stop the car somewhere that they could easily be seen because Migliorini had actually been afraid of the monster of Florence. Unfortunately for Migliorini and Minardi, their less secluded parking spot would not be enough to stop the monster from striking again. This night, because Migliorini and Maynardi had been parked in an open, less secluded location, it is believed that they would have been able to see the monster as he approached them. Because of this, Maynardi had enough of a warning before the monster began to openly fire on him and Migliorini to actually start the car and attempt to get away. However, due to the way that the vehicle was parked, with its rear end facing out towards the open street, Maynardi was not able to move the vehicle fast enough. Migliorini was shot and killed immediately, and Maynardi was severely wounded. Succumbing to his wounds, Maynardi crashed the car into a ditch, where it would soon be found moments later by passing motorists, who had believed that they were simply coming across the scene of a car accident. The attack on Migliorini and Maynardi differed from the others in two additional ways as well, one being that the body of Migliorini was not mutilated post-mortem, likely since the arrival of the motorists spooked the monster away, rendering him unable to perform his post-murder ritual, and two, being that though horribly injured and barely clinging to life, Maynardi was found unconscious but alive. Sadly, however, despite first responders' attempts to save him, Maynardi would die hours later in the hospital. Though Maynardi never actually regained consciousness from the time he and Migliorini were discovered to the time he passed away, the police used the news that Maynardi had been found alive to their advantage. The assistant prosecutor on the case, Sylvia Della Monica, issued a press release giving a false statement that Maynardi had survived long enough to, quote, say a few words about the person who had attacked him and Migliorini. This press release would end up serving its intended purpose. Twelve days after the Migliorini-Maynardi murder, police received their greatest lead in the case to date. On July 1, 1982, an envelope arrived at police headquarters, and it contained an old, yellowing clipping with an article dating back to the summer of 1968, the story being about a young couple that had been shot to death while parked in their car in Lostra Signa, aka the murders of Barbalocci and Antonio Lobianco, that of which Stefano Mele had been convicted of and jailed for 14 years prior. On the top of the clipping, a cryptic note had been written, why don't you take another look at this case? The police, they did just that. 
and the reopening of the case presented police with a startling connection. The same gun that had been used to murder Lochi and Lobianco in 1968 had also been used to murder Patini and Jean Tocor in 1974. In fact, it was not only the same gun, but also the same type of bullets from the same box. This was the first time, actually, that the murders of Lochi and Lobianco were connected with the other three murders committed by the monster of Florence, and police realized that the case they thought was open and shut back in 1968 was actually nothing of the sort. Back when he had first been brought into police custody, Stefano Melli had accused three brothers, Giovanni, Salvatore, and Francesco Vinci, of being involved in the murders, but police had not really taken his accusation seriously at the time. Now, however, after realizing the connections between the murders, police took a second look at the three brothers and began to formulate a theory. What if Stefano Melli had not been the one to murder Lochi and Lobianco, but had been the guy that the brothers had forced to take the fall? Police theorized that the murders of Lochi and Lobianco were a delito di clan, or clan killing. Mele was an immigrant from the island of Sardinia, and Giovanni, Salvatore, and Francesco Vinci were as well. In addition, after Lochi and Lobianco's murders, the gun had never been found. Thus opened up the vein of investigation that police dubbed the Pista Sarda, or the Sardinian Connection, and the main theory that investigators followed was that one of the three brothers, who had all been lovers of Barbalochi at one point or another, had enjoyed the experience of murder so much that he had gone on to become the monster of Florence, using the same gun that had been used to murder Lochi and Lobianco in 1968. As police began to look more closely into the three brothers, another piece of evidence was discovered. It was Francesco Vinci's car, found abandoned, hidden in the woods in the south of Tuscany, only a few days after the murders of Migliorini and Mainardi. Police believed that Francesco Vinci had seen the false press release cooked up by Silvia Della Monica and had tried to hide his car for fear that it would be connected with the crime. Police were quick to jump on their new prime suspect, and Francesco Vinci was arrested. The police's belief that they finally had the right man in prison would soon be dashed, however, because on the night of Friday, September 9, 1983, the monster of Florence struck again. On that night, two German tourists, Jean's Uwe Rouge and Horst William Meyer, both aged 24, were relaxing and listening to music in their VW camper van. They were parked near Galuzzo, a residential area of Florence, when they were attacked by the monster. Shots were fired from outside of the van through the windows. The glass was shattered but did not break or fall inward. Because his vision was obscured, the monster had to move to the other side of the van, where he continued shooting through the other window, then entered the van to finish the job. When Ruschenmeyer's bodies were discovered, neither had been mutilated in the way that the monster had come to be known for. A torn up gay pornographic magazine had been found in the van, and police theorized that the monster had attacked Ruschenmeyer because he had mistaken Rusch, who was tall, slight, and had long blonde hair, for a woman, and he had torn up the magazine in anger when he realized both of his victims were men and had possibly been lovers, leaving him with no female body to enact his sick post-mortem ritual on. The murders of Ruschenmeyer offered police another clue to bring them one step closer to uncovering the identity of the elusive monster, his height. The windows on Ruschenmeyer's VW bus were significantly higher than that of the cars that the monster's previous victims had been in, and because the monster was still able to shoot Ruschenmeyer clearly through the windows, this indicated to police that the man they were looking for would have to be at least 5 foot 9 to 5 foot 10 inches tall. Still convinced that they were following the correct lead with the Vinci brothers, police released Francesco Vinci, who could not have been the monster since he was in police custody when Ruschenmeyer were killed, and arrested his brother Salvatore. 
Giovanna Mele, Stefano Mele's brother, and Pietro Mucciarini, Mele's brother-in-law, were also brought in for questioning. Although Mele and Mucciarini were not part of the Vinci family, they had also been mentioned by Stefano Mele and his inconsistent ramblings about what had transpired the night Lochi and Lobianco were murdered in 1968. Police felt that it was entirely possible that these two members of the Mele family may have had reason to want Barbara Lochi, quote, out of the picture, due to Lochi's promiscuous nature, which may have been an embarrassment to the Mele's family name. And if Mele and Mucciarini had played a hand in Lochi and Lobianco's murder, they could also have taken the Beretta 22 caliber pistol that was the monster's primary weapon. Let's go ahead and skip forward to the night of Saturday, July 29th, 1984. Pierre Antini, age 18, and Claudio Stefanacci, age 21, were parked in a spot they frequented often, a woody area in Vicio near Florence. Like the victims before them, both Rontini and Stefanacci were fatally shot where they sat in their car. Rontini's body was then dragged out of the car to a nearby area where the monster proceeded to carry out his ritual post-mortem mutilation. However, this time, the monster decided to take it one step farther. In addition to his typical mutilation of his female victim's genitals, he also cut off Rontini's left breast. The missing flesh was not discovered at the scene, and police assumed that the monster had taken it with him when he fled the scene of his brutal crime. On top of adding another step into his grotesque ritual, the monster also left police two more clues at the scene of Rontini and Stefanacci's murder. A handprint on the top of the car, which police determined to mean that the killer was right-handed, and knee marks on the side of the car, which confirmed the killer's height to be between 5 foot 9 inches and 6 feet tall, similar to what police had theorized based on the evidence from the scene of the murders of Roosh and Meyer 10 months earlier. Once again, the monster had struck while police were holding suspects in custody, and they had no choice but to release the Sardinians. What had initially seemed like a certain connection to find the true identity of the monster of Florence turned out to be nothing but another dead end. While police scrambled over the next year to find any evidence to offer a new thread for them to follow to the monster, the killer himself went off the radar once again. That is, until the night of Sunday, September 8th, 1985, when the monster's heinous itch for murder would act up again and he would claim the lives of two more people. The monster selected Nadine Moriot, age 36, and Jean-Michael Kravichvili, age 25, as his next victims. Both Moriot and Kravichvili were foreigners. They were French, to be specific, suggesting an unsettling truth. The last two of the three couples that fell victim to the monster were foreigners because the native residents were so terrified of the monster that they no longer dared to venture into the isolated areas around Florence any longer. Poor, unsuspecting tourists, however, did not have the same trepidation and ventured out to these areas in spite of warning signs and danger notices that the city of Florence had posted all over the countryside. For the monster, these tourists were like sitting ducks. Morio and Kravichvili had put up a tent where their car was parked, just off a main road near San Casciano, a town just outside of Florence. The monster approached the couple's tent, and it is debated whether the monster opened the tent and began to shoot at Morio and Kravichvili, or if he had used a knife to first cut open the front of the couple's tent and then laid in wait for them to come out and investigate. Either way, the monster began to shoot at the couple. Morio was shot in the face and killed instantly. Kravichvili, who was young, strong, and a trained sprinter, managed to surprise the monster when he burst out of the tent and began to run for his life. At this time, Kravichvili had only been hit in the arm. Unfortunately, however, Kravichvili ran the wrong way. In one direction, he would have quickly reached the street, to safety, but Kravichvili ran deeper into the woods. 
Amateur sprinter though he was, Kravchvili was injured and he was unable to outrun the monster. The monster caught up to him, and in a manner differing brutally from his typical M.O. of shooting his victims to death, the monster murdered Kravchvili by slashing his throat to the point of near decapitation. After killing Kravchvili, the monster returned to Morio's body, where he once again proceeded to remove her genitalia and left breast, and took them with him as he made his escape into the night. On September 10th, one day after the murders of Morio and Kravichvili were discovered, Sylvia Della Monica, the assistant prosecutor on the case, received a letter. The address had been made of letters cut out of a magazine, and the letter itself contained a chilling trophy that the monster had claimed from his last murder. It was Nadine Morio's nipple. Though they tried to sweep the letter for clues, the monster had been smart. There were no fingerprints, and although DNA technology was near non-existent during this time, the monster had even avoided sealing the envelope with his tongue. For months after this letter was received, the police and residents of Florence waited on tenterhooks for when the monster would strike again. However, after committing his most brutal murder to date, the monster of Florence would never commit another. It seemed that the shadowy enigma of a man who had tormented Florence for the last 17 years had finally decided that it was time for his spree of serial murders to come to an end. To this date, the case of the monster Florence remains officially unsolved. However, there has been no lack of people suspected and arrested for the crimes. We've gone over some of the earlier suspects like Stefano Mele, Enzo Spalletti, and the Vinci Brothers, but let's take a deeper dive into more of the people that, at one point or another, police believed to be the killer they were hunting for. The biggest question mark that kept coming up for police was the connection of Lochi and Lobianco's murders in 1968 to the spree that began in 1981. The thing that threw them for the greatest loop was the Beretta 22 caliber pistol, the weapon that had been used to murder Lochi and Lobianco, as well as the 14 other victims of the monster. There are two theories to explain the question of the gun, the first being that the murders of Lochi and Lobianco were indeed carried out as a Sardinian clan killing, and the gun remained within the men who had carried it out, thus meaning that the monster of Florence had to be someone who was present in 1968. The second theory was that somehow the gun had passed hands and was now being used by an unknown maniac who had nothing to do with the Sardinians at all. The second theory, however, did present an additional question. If the gun had changed hands after 1968, why did the monster proceed to commit crimes in a similar fashion to the murder of Lochi and Lobianco? And why was the killer specifically committing double murders, targeting couples alone in remote areas? From these questions comes another theory. That is, that the 1968 murders weren't a Sardinian clan killing after all, but were actually the true start of the monster of Florence's reign of terror. This theory is supported by the fact that all of the murders were carried out using the same gun, with the same type of bullets, with the similar typology of the victims, and all in similar locations. There are, however, circumstances at work against this theory as well. Those are that the 1968 crime had a clear motive and a long line of clues pointing back to a specific group of people, something that cannot be said about the rest of the monster's crimes. Also, there was no knife used in any way during the murders of Lochi and Lobianco, nor had Lochi's body been mutilated post-mortem. And the 1968 murder had also left a witness. That was Lochi's six-year-old son, Natalino, who had been asleep in the back seat. None of the monster's other crimes would be enacted with a witness in the vicinity. Lastly, there was the fact that Stefano Melli confessed to killing his wife and her lover, and if Melli wasn't guilty or truly had nothing to do with Lochi and Lobianco's murder, why would he have not only confessed to the crime, but implicated the Sardinian clan as well? 
The examining magistrate on the case, Mario Rotella, remained thoroughly convinced that a Sardinian clan member was responsible for all of the serial murders. He was most suspicious of Salvatore Vinci, even though Vinci was still in police custody when Nadine Morio and Jean-Michel Cravichvili were murdered. Rotella, however, was so convinced that Vinci was the monster of Florence that he didn't much care at all that Vinci couldn't have possibly killed Morio and Cravichvili. Rotella had Vinci arrested and put on trial for the murder of his wife, but when Vinci's son refused to testify against him, Vinci was acquitted and released. Rotella's actions angered Chief Prosecutor Pierre Luigi Vigna, who was a proponent of the theory that the monster was not involved in the murders of Locillo Bianco at all, but instead had somehow acquired the gun from the Sardinians after their murders had been committed. Though the Sardinian clan were the choice suspects for many of the investigators close to the heart of the case, there was also another line of investigation that police took with extreme interest. On September 11th, 1985, the task force investigating the monster's crimes received an anonymous letter implicating a man named Pietro Pacciani, who was a semi-illiterate Tuscan farmer with an extremely violent past, as the monster of Florence. The letter described Pacciani as, quote, a violent man who mistreats his wife and daughters. Now let's give a little backstory to Mr. Pietro Pacciani. Back in 1951, Pacciani had attacked a woman, who was his girlfriend at the time, and who would later become his wife, when he found her with a rival lover kissing in the other man's car. Pacciani had pulled the man out of his car, beat him over the head with a rock, then pulled out a knife and fatally stabbed him 19 times. Pacciani then proceeded to force his girlfriend to lie next to the body of her dead lover, where he then raped her. After he was finished assaulting her, he stole her lover's wallet and then raped the man's corpse. It was pointed out that this crime showed chilling similarities to the monster's MO, and the task force leader Ruggiero Perugini found it especially interesting that Pacciani had reportedly been spurred into violence when he had witnessed his girlfriend reveal one of her breasts to her lover, which Perugini compared to the monster's mutilation of his female victim's left breasts in his last two shootings. Following this lead, Perugini ran a computer search for local residents with a penchant for sex crimes, propensity for violence, and an explanation for the gap in murders from 1974 to 1981. Once again, Pacciani's name surfaced, and attached to it was an explanation for the lull in the murders. Pacciani had actually been in prison between 1974 and 1981 for raping his daughters. Additionally, during a search of Pacciani's house, investigators had found a replica of Botticelli's Primavera, a painting depicting the nymph Chloris holding roses in her mouth. Investigators couldn't help but notice the similarities of the painting to how Carmela Dinuccio's body had been found, which was naked with her gold chain necklace strewn above her mouth. Police also found additional strange paintings crafted by Pacciano himself, as well as knives and a hunting rifle. They did not, however, discover the monster's signature Beretta 22 caliber pistol. On April 22, 1992, which just so happened was the deadline of the search for Pacciani's home, police just happened to discover a rusted Winchester H-series cartridge, the same kind of ammo used by the monster. Though there were no markings on the bullet casing since it had not actually been fired from a gun, ballistics experts subtly implied that the bullet showed evidence of having been loaded into a Beretta 22 after they received pressure from their superiors to do so. The police also discovered a piece of a Beretta 22 wrapped in a piece of cloth found in Pacciani's garage, 
with an anonymous letter stating that the piece had been found beneath a tree close to an area that Pacciani was known to frequent. On January 19, 1993, Pacciani was arrested and accused of the crimes of the monster Florence. This was not without criticism, however. In an interview with reporter Mario Spezzi, who was incredibly close to the case, Officer Arturo Minaliti voiced his opinions that the evidence discovered in Pacciani's home had been planted there by Perugini and that the note they had discovered had been fabricated as well. Though the evidence was shaky at best, Pacciani was put on trial for the murders in April of the same year. Though he adamantly proclaimed his innocence throughout the entire trial, Pacciani was subsequently found guilty of the monster's crimes in 1994. The only crime for which Pacciani was not found guilty were the murders of Lochi and Lobianco in 1968. During the trial, the most damning evidence used against Pacciani was testimony from Mario Vanni, whom described Pacciani and himself as picnicking friends, and from Lorenzo Nessi, who claimed that Pacciani boasted about shooting pheasants with a gun. Nessi also implicated Pacciani in the 1985 murders of Moriel and Kravichvili. Per Italian law, though, Pacciani's conviction was immediately subjected to an automatic appeal. A new prosecutor was assigned to prosecute Pacciani for the appeal and outright refused to consider any of the evidence that had been presented in Pacciani's first trial. The prosecutor decried the lack of concrete evidence and even compared the investigators to Inspector Clouseau. Yeah, the incompetent French police detective from the Pink Panther. <laughs> On Friday the 13th, or uh, sorry, on February 13th, 1996, the day of Pacciani's expected acquittal, the police produced four new witnesses. They were Fernando Pucci, a developmentally disabled man who claimed to have witnessed Pacciani commit the murders of Morio and Cravichvili in 1985, Giancarlo Lodi, a so-called village idiot who claimed to have aided Pacciani in several of the monster murders, Lodi also claimed that he and Pacciani had carried out the murders at the behest of a wealthy Florentine doctor, whose name, conveniently enough, only Pacciani knew, and who had recruited Pacciani and Lodi to commit the murders to provide him with female body parts to offer to the devil. There was also Gabriella Ghirabelli, a sex worker and known alcoholic, who claimed that Pacciani and his friends were members of a satanic cult. The fourth and final witness was Ghirabelli's pimp, Norberto Galli. When these witnesses were presented, the judge berated the police for their last-minute maneuver and actually refused to allow the new witnesses to testify. Pacciani was subsequently cleared of all fault and released. A higher court did end up overturning the appeal and sent the case to be retried, but Pacciani would end up dying due to a heart attack the day before his scheduled retrial in 1998. A few months later, Vani and Lodi were convicted of being Pacciani's accomplices in the crimes, though Lodi's own accounts of the murders had not matched any of the evidence found at the scene at all. The investigation of the case would later be opened again in 2001, when investigators reportedly began to suspect that the crimes were committed by a sect of 10 to 12 wealthy Italians. This line of investigation did not go very far, and the case would not be looked into again until 2004, when Mario Spezzi, who had been active in covering the crime since 1974, began to independently investigate the case with the help of Douglas Preston, an American thriller author. The two co-wrote the book The Monster Florence, a true story, which I actually read as part of my research on this case, and it's a really great read. It goes more in-depth into the crimes, the investigation, and the absolute mess that Italian police made of Pacciani's trial. So if you guys want to take a deeper dive into all of that, I highly recommend that book. Anyways, 
Spezzi and Preston's investigation actually uncovered some interesting new evidence, specifically regarding Morio and Kravichvili's murders. They showed photos of the maggots on Morio's bodies to entomologist Francesco Introna, who, based on the maggots' development, determined that the victims had been killed no less than 36 hours before their bodies had been discovered. This would mean that Morio and Kravichvili were not murdered on September 8th like the police had initially concluded, but on September 7th. This change in date also proves that the so-called accomplices, Lodi and Bonnie, had lied about theirs and Pacciani's involvement in the crimes. Pacciani could not have committed these murders, as he had a solid alibi. He was spotted multiple times at a country fair on the night the monster Florence had slain his final two victims. Though multiple suspects were investigated for the monster's crimes, not a single one of them was ever convicted with absolute certainty that they were the killer for whom the Italian police had been so desperately searching. The murders committed by the monster Florence still remain unsolved, and although the case continues to find popularity in mainstream culture through television, movies, and books, Italian police are no closer to solving this case than they were back in 1968, or 1974, depending on what theory you subscribe to, when the monster committed that first murder that sparked a killing spree that would leave a permanent bloody mark on Florentine history. So with that, that is the story of the monster of Florence. When I was researching for this case, I was so taken aback by just the sheer brutality of these crimes that he had committed. Like, especially the, the post-mortem mutilation of the female victim's bodies just... It gave me chills. It like made my spine crawl. It was so, so brutal. And the fact that there were so many suspects and so many moving parts in this case, you know, people who were suspected, different theories that police were subscribing to, but the fact that like nobody was ever actually convicted or proven to be the monster of Florence, that is just absolutely crazy to me. I mean, the man committed like, what was it? eight double homicides, you know, all with the same MO, the same gun. These poor couples were just trying to have a nice romantic night sitting together and, you know, in their cars in a secluded area, just trying to get some alone time that they probably never got. And then this crazy man comes out with a gun and just brutally murders them and brutally abuses their bodies after the fact. When I was thinking through this, I don't know kind of which which theory that I would subscribe to. I think I lean more across the vein that the murders of Lochi and Lobianco were a clan killing in 1968, and then somehow, some way, that Beretta 22 caliber pistol had changed hands. I don't really think that the Vinci brothers had anything to do with the monster of Florence's crimes. I think that somehow, some way, somebody got a hold of that gun. Maybe they had heard about Lochi and Lobianco's murders and they're like, hmm, you know what? That seems like a really fun thing. I'm going to, I'm going to do that too. And then they also decided to just, you know, start murdering couples alone in their cars for, for no good reason at all. You know, I mean, not that there's ever a good reason to murder anybody, but you know, you, you get what I'm saying. Anyways, um... If this case was interesting to you, if you have your thoughts, maybe you have your own theories as to what went down, if you want to talk about it, um, I have an Instagram for the podcast. It's at TSRH Podcast. You can DM me. You can follow me. I will put up a post for this case up on the Instagram if you guys want to talk about it in the comments. Um, again, that was TSRH Podcast on Instagram. 
Um, the next case that I am probably going to cover is going to be the case of Armin Muse, the uh, Rotenberg cannibal, if you will. That is a case that intrigues me in the most morbid of ways. So if you're interested in that, I'm hoping to get that done within the next couple weeks and post that episode. But if you like this, please give a good review. Please go ahead and follow me on Instagram. And I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.